Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Good morning. You are watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk with me, Kevin O'Sullivan, on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, as Israel gears up for a ground invasion of Gaza, the UN warns that fuel and medicine supplies there are about to run out. Plus, Suella Bravman is set to target migrants by raising the salary threshold for entry to the UK. And Hamza Youssef tells the SNP conference he'll call for a second independence referendum if his party wins a majority at the next election. Israel's Prime Minister says his military are ready to strike Hamas at any moment. Benjamin Netanyahu promised to demolish the terrorist group. The Israeli Defence Forces have spent years planning for a ground invasion into Gaza. But will an invasion lead to a uh, far uh, wider war across the Middle East? Uh, to discuss this and more, I'm joined by Conservative commentator Benedict Spence. Why do they always call you a Conservative commentator? I think it's just the blue suit. I don't, I'm going to call you a commentator <laughs> to give you more of a wide range of... <laughs> I can talk on other subjects. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Not many, um, but... Now, uh, well, let's talk about Israel. I mean, uh, we've been hearing now for days, it's coming, it's coming, mm. the next stage is about to happen. Get prepared to die and all that from Netanyahu. A lot of tough talk, uh, mm. and I'm certain tough action is going to happen very, very soon. Uh, now, at the weekend, apparently, uh, we've got about 400,000 Israeli troops all amassed on the various borders of the Gaza Strip. At the weekend, we're told they were going to go in, but for some reason, bad weather stopped that, something mm. about air cover. Uh, but now he is saying uh, very, very soon they will attack by uh, land, sea and air. Mm. Uh, when would you predict that might happen? The next couple of days? I Today, mean, maybe? Honestly, it might be any time. This is going to be the key thing, is that the Israelis aren't going to want to, obviously, let it be known exactly when it's going to happen to give sort of Hamas the optimum opportunity to prepare. But they do also, I think, want to give civilians as much time as they can to get out of uh, there because... 
I mean, for a number of reasons. I mean, for a start, the second that uh, Palestinian civilians start getting caught in the crossfire, international outcry will ratchet up and, you know, mm. everybody will start demanding ceasefires. There'll be calls for boycotts of Israel, uh, what have you. Uh, but there's also a practical aspect to this, which is that civilians in what is a very narrow strip of land, very tightly compacted, uh, they get in the way of military operations. If you have soldiers going into Gaza, they're not going to be shooting at civilians. They're going to be trying to avoid them at all costs. So you want as few of them to be there as possible because if they start getting in the way, that bogs down your soldiers. It means that you have other things to worry about beyond just Hamas. And Hamas, make no mistake about this, they will understand the lay of the land a lot better than the Israelis. They will use every opportunity to bog down the IDF as it moves forward. So there is that uh, desire, I think, to get as many civilians out of the area as possible. And I know that there is a lot of blood and thunder sort of rhetoric coming from Netanyahu, but they don't want to be butchers of ordinary people. They don't want to be seen to be butchers, but na- make no mistake about it. It will come, certainly within, I think, the next two to three days. Um, things like air cover, these are very important things to sort of take into account. There is the other aspect to it, though, which is the logistics of the IDF itself. 400,000 soldiers is a lot of soldiers. You know, they, In terms of getting all of these people in there, you want it to be very organized because it's very easy for sort of chaos to break out if they go in and a portion are trapped and they're routed and they're pushed back and then you have soldiers coming in from behind. That can create serious logistical bottlenecks that the IDF will have to work very hard to avoid essentially sending its soldiers into a meat grinder. Well, we're looking at the live pictures of the Rafa border between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. Egypt isn't allowing anyone out of the Gaza Strip into Egypt. Uh, what, why would it be that Egypt doesn't want to help its uh, Muslim brothers in their uh, hour of need? The first thing that the Egyptians would say is that it is the Palestinians' land and that they shouldn't be forced from their land and that they don't want to encourage yeah, right. these... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. They don't want to encourage the Israelis to think that they can basically, get away with... Translation, we don't want them. We don't want two, two million hungry mouths to feed is basically what it is. And you can, you can understand why nobody yeah, wants it, that. Yeah. Um, but also... Egypt has a difficult relationship with Hamas. Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Sinai Peninsula is home to uh, an insurgency that is being committed by the Muslim Brotherhood against the uh, the government of Egypt. So there is also that. If you let all of these people through, that is not to say that they will all be civilians. We know that it's not all going to be civilians. There will be militants who try to get through as part of that, if nothing else, to cause discord, to cause chaos, to try to create issues, um, possibly to try and tempt... Uh, the, the the Egyptians to get involved in a different way into the conflict. So you can entirely understand from Egypt's security situation, you don't want two million undocumented people flooding over the border. That's chaos. Indeed. Now, a lot of calls from various world leaders, including our uh, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, uh, for Netanyahu and Israel to show restraint when mm. they finally do go in, when they invade. Uh which is fair enough. But what occurs to me is, you know, they do have to avenge what happened last weekend. Mm. Atrocities, Mm. you know, babies being beheaded, grandmothers being raped, Mm. 260 kids at a pop concert, chopped down in a hail of bullets. Israel, this isn't just about asserting Israel's authority. It is about avenging the atrocities that were visited upon Israeli people. Uh, So make no mistake, uh, Netanyahu is going to want this to look visual, isn't he? Yeah, I think we... uh... 
I'm not trying to sort of give Israel an out or give them preferential treatment, but it does often seem that there is a different set of rules applied to Israel. Any other country in this situation would not have quite the same cascade of countries saying, no, you must show restraint, you can't do this, that, and the other. I think we ourselves forget, we like to think that we've moved on, but take the example of the Second World War. I know we always come back to it in this country, but actually, what did we do to the Nazis? What did we do to Germany? Did we avoid civilians? No, we firebombed Dresden, we firebombed Hamburg. We killed a lot of civilians in our bid to wipe out an evil ideology. Israel will feel that it doesn't want to kill civilians, but it will feel that it can get away with certain things in the name of wiping out a murderous organization, which Hamas is. Let's make no mistakes about that. Let's remind ourselves uh, of what the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly had to say about this escalating tension. Yeah, images of, of, uh, of people being held uh, images of bodies being desecrated are still sloshing around on social media. So, of course, they have every right, and we support this right, to protect themselves. Whilst doing it, we've said, do everything you can to minimise civilian casualties, do everything you can to prevent Hamas getting what they want, which is this to escalate into a, a wider regional conflict. Uh, now, now, in the Gaza, of course, uh, there are women, there are children, there are hospitals, there are all sorts of places... Uh, that uh, should not be attacked, uh, but they inevitably will. We were just looking at a hospital there, uh, right there in the middle of Gaza. Uh, why is it, Benedict, do you feel... I mean, hospitals always seem to become targets, don't they? Because ha- uh, Hamas were firing rockets at, Israel- at an Israeli children's yeah, hospital. I mean, Could- couldn't we at least get both sides to agree? Leave the hospitals alone. I think very often in war you can get some agreement around hospitals. Not always, but you can. But the point about Hamas is they're not a legitimate government. They don't operate under the same rules uh, that the Israeli government do. Or, you know, you couldn't even compare them to the Russians or anything like that. Well, their objective is about murdering Jewish people. As far as they're concerned, hospitals are fantastic targets because (laughs) they know where everybody is. They know that they can't get out. And they know that by attacking them, they are reducing the means by which um, people can be treated, people can be rescued. If you hit the hospital first and then hit other people, well, then that's that's happy days as far as they're concerned. And, of course, then, on the flip side, they recognise there is an emotive issue to around killing children, killing the innocent, killing the weak and the infirm, which is why they base their military installations underneath hospitals, because they know the Israelis will then have no choice but to target the hospitals. I'm told this is called the Kanyanis Hospital in uh, southern Gaza. Uh, but, you know, the Israelis uh, fired on a, a, a Gaza, Gaza hospital last week, so mm. it seems to cut both ways. Uh, I, I, at the very least, I never understand why it said there's all the calling on restraint and all this sort of stuff. Well, couldn't both sides agree not to target hospitals? As I said, I, I just think Hamas would never agree to it, or they might say they would and then they'd do it anyway. Yeah. But ultimately, I think what Western... Uh, viewers are seeing, and we've seen this in Ukraine as well, as much as people call on international human rights law, international rules around war, you're going to get a real wake-up call that actually the reality of the world is that this isn't what happens. The only way that things like international law makes any kind of a difference is if one side that breaks the laws are defeated, their leadership is captured and you can put them on trial. How often actually does that happen? Sometimes, very small states like in the Balkans, but Broadly speaking, that's not what happens. That's not going to happen to Putin in Russia. That's not going to happen here. This is what war is about. It's about brutality. Our top story today. Israel's Prime Minister says his military are ready to strike Hamas at any moment. Benjamin Netanyahu promised to demolish the terrorist group. The Israeli Defence Forces have spent years planning for a ground invasion.
invasion into Gaza. But will an invasion lead to a far wider war across the Middle East? Uh, let's cross over now to the Gaza border, where we can get the latest on the ground from our correspondent, Gareth Brown. Hi, Gareth. Uh, are you on the uh, southern border? Not quite. I'm in East Jerusalem, but close enough. Okay, uh, and uh, are you able to sort of see these troops building up in numbers as they prepare for this invasion? I'm just wondering, I hate this kind of question, but you know where I'm coming from. You know, what is the atmosphere there like? I would imagine uh, it's very tense. Uh, it is one of trepidation. Uh, tell us uh, what the scene is there. Yeah, I mean, whether we can see it or not, we can definitely feel it. I think tense is the word. I think Israel is still a country which is, um, you know, blinded by, well, not blinded, but it's, 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 it's overwhelmed by grief and anger. Um, yesterday, I was in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank, where, you know, there's more than 2 million Palestinians living there. A very kind of somber atmosphere, watching it unfold from the, from the Palestinian uh, perspective, you know, outside of Gaza. Um, but I guess the feeling is that this is coming at any minute now from an Israeli perspective, this, this, this absolutely massive operation, which we're going to see unfold probably in the coming um, day or two. Um, still, there's been, you know, rocket warnings, there's rocket fire coming out of Gaza. We've had a few warnings of rocket fire coming in from Lebanon. Um, you know, a few of those have proven to be false alarms, though. Um, so yeah, tense is the word. It's an eye of the storm sort of period. You know, I go out on the streets in Jerusalem and it's, it's pretty quiet. A lot of people are home. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, been to the supermarkets and stockpiled food. Nobody's really sure where this is going to come, when are the, where this is going to go. Uh, the invasion when it comes, I think, will be a manifestation, as you say, of Israel's grief and its fury. Now, you've been among the Palestinians on the West Bank, you just said. Uh, what, what is their feeling? I mean, uh, we keep stressing here at Talk TV that there's a difference between Hamas and ordinary Palestinians. They've had the misfortune to be ruled by these theological tyrants for 13 years. Uh, we all know that in private they don't love Hamas. Uh, what is the attitude and the feeling of the Palestinians? I mean, they must, to some extent, uh, sympathise with Israel's fury that their babies were beheaded, that grandmothers were uh, executed on Facebook, that 260 young Israelis were cut down in a hail of bullets at a pop concert. I mean, on a human level, even the Palestinians must understand Israel has got a right uh, to be furious and a, re a, a right to exact revenge. Yeah, I think I think when you when you put those specific examples of violence to your average Palestinian, there is, you know, there is a rejection of that. Just last night, the, the Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas, who's you know Fatah party are largely secular, and you know they're staunch rivals of of Hamas. You know, he said he rejected the 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 violence against civilians and and the hostage taking. But I think if you're a Palestinian, you also, you know, I was speaking to an official in, in Ramallah yesterday and he said, look, we're, you know, we don't necessarily support the, the Hamas um, attack that happened just over a week ago. But this retaliation is not seen as a retaliation against Hamas. It's seen as a retaliation against the Palestinian people, the Palestinian nation. And, you know, I guess you see the numbers which are starting to build up in Gaza there. They're absolutely awful. We're at about 2,700 2, dead. Uh, the interior ministry said 
just this morning that they think there's at least another thousand bodies beneath the rubble. Uh, the UN said about an hour ago that the strip has essentially run out of body bags. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the Palestinian perspective, if you're in the West Bank on Gaza, um, it's built through the lens of, of, of a very, you know, long running occupation. The, 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 the West Bank has been occupied by Israel since 1967. And, you know, we've had this blockade for more than 15 years on Gaza. So I think from the Palestinian perspective, they very much see it through, through that experience, but they're worried, you know, these, these, these Palestinians in, in West, in the West Bank, they have family in Gaza. They have friends in Gaza. They, they see it as, um, you know, part of their part of their their nation, and and they're watching, you know, this massive aerial bombardment. This is one of the most intense aerial bombardments in the history of modern warfare. Um, so they might not out and out support, you know, Hamas. They they're not fans of Hamas. That they're, they're many of them in the West Bank are more are more secular. Um, but they 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 I think they're horrified at what is unfolding in Gaza. And uh, we understand that uh, there's more than half a million. Uh, Palestinians in Gaza are already being made homeless by this relentless uh, bombing campaign by Israel. Israel has also ordered everyone from the north to head south, a difficult proposition in a country that one of the most crowded, one of the most densely populated strips of land on the face of the earth is only 32 miles long. Uh, and a lot more narrow than that. Uh, how is this evacuation going? Are the people of the north managing successfully to head south? And if they are, I mean, you know, they're already like sardines crammed into a tin. I mean, if you push mm. them further south, I mean, conditions must be uh, dreadful. Yeah, dreadful is the word. Look, Kev, it's one thing telling people to go south. And, and saying, you know, get out of Gaza City for your own safety. But I was on the phone to someone in Rafa, and that's, that's right at the southern end of Gaza, uh, about half an hour ago. Um, there's airstrikes happening in Rafa and in Khan Yunis. So they're being told to evacuate to places that the Israeli Air Force is, st is still bombing. So let's not pretend this is a kind of safe zone, or this is a secluded zone. In the last six hours, scores of Palestinians have died in the southern parts of the Strip. So they're not fleeing to a safe place. They're, they're, I guess, if you were going to put it generously, they're being told to flee to a place which is being slightly less bombed than, than Gaza City. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder to, to, to what end. I, I think they have achieved, they, the Israelis have managed to get a lot of people to move out of the city, but there's still a lot of people there. Uh, you know, the UN says that there's about 50,000 people sheltering in schools inside Gaza City. And many of them are too afraid to leave. They, they, they simply can't get out. So, I mean, it's one thing telling people to leave. I guess in, in, in some way that kind of gives you, gives you cover. But the reality is, you know, as, as the UN and many other international organizations have said, practically it's just, it's just impossible. And, and when you do flee to Rafa, you know, you, you do flee to Gaza, then, then what? Are you, are you safe there? I mean, the families of people who've been killed in airstrikes in the southern parts of Gaza, the Gaza Strip would probably say no. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, last week, uh, Israel cut off everything. It cut off the water, fuel, power, uh, food. Uh, now, we hear that Netanyahu has been persuaded by uh, Joe Biden, the uh, American president, uh, to restore water to the Gaza. I mean, uh, is that the case? Are they uh, now able to get drinking water? And 
even with just that, I mean, surely conditions within this incredibly crowded uh, strip of land must be uh, just appalling. I mean, so they, they've, they've said that they've put water back on, but the reality is it, it hasn't happened. This is speaking to people who are there. You can't just turn the water on. You need, you need, you need fuel, you need power to get the pumps going. You have to understand that so much of the water infrastructure has been damaged in the last seven or eight days. Uh, I spoke to a, a doctor in one of the biggest hospitals in Gaza. He said that patients, this is patients, are down to, they're being given about 300 milliliters of water per day each. Some of these are people in intensive care. They've lost limbs. Um, you know, this doctor basically said there's there's no room to stand. There's, you know, the morgues are, are piling up. People are too afraid to go to, to the graveyards. He said he's very, very concerned that there's a high risk of cholera and typhus. I mean, <laughs> these were diseases that we thought have been banished. It's also incredibly hot down there. So imagine you're in Al-Shifa hospital, you're in the middle of Gaza city. There's tens of thousands of people who have fled to the hospital because they think it's the only place safe from being bombed. There's corpses piling up. Um, you've got hundreds of people waiting for surgery probably down to about 24, 48 hours of, of power left from the generators. And every so often the whole building shakes because all of the buildings around you are, are still being targeted, they're being bombed. Um, I mean, I don't think that even scratches in describing the humanitarian situation, but we shouldn't talk about an impending humanitarian crisis or disaster, it's already happened. It, it, it already is a catastrophe. And assuming this ground invasion goes forward, it's it's going to get an awful lot worse. Um, fast forwarding, I don't suppose we should fast forward uh, through the horrors to come because they haven't happened yet. The invasion hasn't happened. But what in the long term, uh, Gareth, do you think Israel's intention intentions are for the Gaza Strip? I mean, what what are they going to do? Assimilate it? Uh, raise it to the ground? What are their plans? It's a great question. Um, I, I've really been trying to get an answer to this from Israeli officials myself the last week or so. Frankly, I, I don't think they know yet. I, I, I think I don't think there is a political objective at the end of this. I think it's a it's a military mission to defeat Hamas. Now we could look at some international options. You know, one thing's being talked about getting people to flee into Egypt. Uh, you know, refugees to go into Egypt, that seems very unlikely because that could be very destabilizing for Egypt. There's talk of the Palestinian Authority, which is obviously based in the West Bank and a, and a strong rival that's le led by President Mahmoud Abbas to, you know, sort of invite them back in to run Gaza. You know, that's an idea being floated, but that would, that would probably not be popular with certain parts of the Israeli rights. I don't know, maybe we're going to hear talk of an internet, some sort of international mission, but the short answer is they don't know. And I think, I think that, is, that is a big problem because how can, you, how can you go into an operation like this without knowing your, your end point? What's your, what's your exfil strategy? I don't get the sense that Israel, you know, Israel occupied the Gaza Strip for a long time, many, many decades, uh, militarily. I mean, it was still legally occupied even, even at this stage, but you know, we had Israeli troops and Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip until about 15 years ago. Does Israel want to, you know, have to police Gaza? Does, does Israel want its soldiers doing patrols of whatever is left of Gaza City's streets? 
I don't think so. I don't sense there's an appetite for that. And, and, and I think this is, I mean, it, perhaps the military planners are discussing it, but I've been asking this question to everyone and nobody, nobody, ha nobody knows. To discuss the conflict in Israel, I'm joined by Andrew Allison, Chief Executive from the Freedom Association. Uh, Andrew, there's a couple of uh, issues we need to discuss in terms of the domestic reaction to what's going on in the Middle East. But first, let's talk about over there. Uh, my line on this is, uh, you know, obviously there is an invasion imminent. Uh, they will go in pretty damn soon, possibly even today. We have 400,000 Israeli soldiers gathering on the borders. Uh, this invasion is imminent. Uh, and I believe it's incumbent upon Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, to exact, frankly, terrible revenge for the terrible atrocities inflicted, inflicted on the Israeli people by Hamas last weekend. I mean, this isn't just about military strategy. This is about revenge. This is about a nation avenging what happened to it, isn't it? Well, it is, yes. And I think all those people who are saying that Israel should show some sort of restraint, well, Israel has been showing restraint in everything that it's been doing. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think that they can't really do any more. I mean, I saw somebody at the weekend in, in the, the protest in London who said that... Um, they were shocked by what had happened a week past Saturday, very shocked. But Israel is guilty of war crimes. Well, what on earth do you regard the killing of innocent babies as? It's obviously a war crime. So I don't know what the people who are criticising Israel are on, to be, to be perfectly honest. I think Israel is doing everything that it can to minimise civilian casualties. But it has to destroy Hamas. That has to be its aim. Yeah, and uh, there will be collateral damage in terms of civilian lives, many uh, civilian lives. Uh, old uh, Jeremy Corbyn was screaming about that from his pulpit at the weekend, you know, saying, well, going on about Israeli war crimes. Uh, I've got this kind of feeling that last weekend, and not the one just gone, the one before that, when Hamas uh, beheaded babies, uh, raped grandmothers, executed people on their doorstep, uh, cut 260 kids down at a pop concert in a hail of bullets. I've got a feeling uh, those are war crimes. They are war crimes. It's the only way to describe them. Uh, and, you know, I said people who are, who are defending Hamas in any way, shape or form have just lost their moral compass. Indeed. Now, let's talk about that. Now, we had these pro-Palestinian demonstrations all over the country at the weekend. Incredible to me, uh, all the demonstrations were pro-Palestinian and not pro-Israel. Israel are the victims here, but uh, suddenly uh, they're seen as the aggressors, the uh, but sort of pantomime villain of the Middle East, as they always are. Uh, do you agree? So uh, you're perfectly legally uh, able to uh, support Palestine, drape yourself in a flag, go on one of these marches, but you're not allowed to support Hamas. Uh, now, mm -hmm. in terms of freedom of speech, uh, do you agree with that distinction? Yeah, absolutely. Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation. That was done by the UK Parliament uh, a couple of years ago. So, yes, you are free to demonstrate, and I will always defend their right to, to peacefully demonstrate. But, of course, what they don't have a right to do is uh, offer support for Hamas, and they don't have 
the right to wander through the streets of London, as we saw at the weekend, looking for Jews because they were after Jew blood. I mean, this is Jew hatred. You cannot do that on the streets of London. Um, so peacefully demonstrate, yes, but some of the scenes that I saw at the weekend, absolutely not. You talk about Hamas being a proscribed organisation. It's forbidden, it's illegal, and you're not allowed in this country uh, to vocally uh, or demonstrably support Hamas. Uh, but uh, because they're an illegal terrorist organisation. This government mm -hmm. classifies them as an illegal terrorist organisation. Why doesn't the BBC do that? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, but as I said, it's also the UK Parliament that regards them as an illegal terrorist organisation. As for the BBC, well, they're an utter disgrace. I mean, I mean, they try to use the excuse that if we call them terrorists, we're taking sides. Well, who the hell wants to take sides with terrorists? I mean, who, do, who wants to do that? They are terrorists, murdering babies, murdering children. I mean, we saw images or heard of images uh, of, of uh, a family, a mother and father and three children all huddled together. And these terrorists shot them all and then burnt their bodies. I mean, what else are you going to call this? It's despicable, it's wicked, it's evil. And if the BBC can't call them terrorists, then I'm afraid the BBC has also lost its moral compass. Yeah, they are very out of step with the rest of the nation, the BBC. Completely on, out of step. On this. Uh, and it sort of feeds into, I mean, you wanted to talk about anti-Semitism, uh, Andrew, which you quite rightly call, if we call it what it really is, it's hatred of Jews, it's Jew-hating. Mm -hmm. uh, why do we have such a problem with this in this country? Uh, because as I say, uh, incredibly, you know, what happened to Israelis? They were the victims of this. Hamas went in, uh, beheaded babies, raped grandmothers, executed people on their doorstep, killed kids at a pop concert, just enjoying themselves. Uh, and all the demonstrations in this country are pro-Palestine. Didn't see anybody uh, marching for Israel. Uh, why do we give Israel such a hard time in this country? As I keep saying, I, I live near Golders Green, a very strong Jewish area. I know these people, they're British. I mean, they might be Hasidic Jews, but they're British. Uh, and yet they are subjected to prejudice and hatred every day of their lives. And right now, after these atrocities committed by Hamas, they are, the poor Jews of this country are right in the firing line. They're having a terrible time. Why is that? Jewish hatred is one of the oldest hatreds in the world. It goes back many, many centuries, probably millennia, really. Uh, and I, I, I don't understand it because I've never felt it. So I'm not even going to try and get into the heads of those people who, who hate Jews so much. But to answer your question is why don't we have pro-Jewish or pro-Israel protests on the streets uh, across our country. I think it's because Jews are too frightened. They're afraid of sending their children to school. They're afraid uh, that when they do send them to school, that they, they go, their school is going to be attacked. It, it's fear. I think we need to do more. We need to make the UK a place where Jewish people are, feel welcomed and feel safe, but particularly safe. At the moment, they don't Andrew, feel just safe. just let me interrupt um, you for a second. Sorry to... Uh, stop you in mid-flow, but we are watching particularly dramatic pictures live from the Gaza Strip now. Massive explosions going on. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the plight of Jews in this country. Uh, and I, we do have to worry about the people of Palestine on the basis that, uh, first of all, the people of Palestine 
are not reflected uh, by their Hamas rulers in, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they are theological tyrants who make life hell for the people who live there. Ordinary Palestinians are like us, as I keep saying. They're just trying to get by, feed their kids, keep a roof over their heads. Uh, and we're seeing these explosions now. The uh, invasion will happen soon. The air attacks will continue. Uh, you, you, we have to fear and worry uh, for the Palestinian people in Gaza, don't we? Well, yeah, yes, we do. Um, but as I said at the beginning of this interview, Kev, uh, Israel really has done everything that he possibly can to warn people who live in Gaza that an invasion is coming, that there's going to be more military strikes. Now, I know it is very difficult to to evacuate from that area. I mean, Gaza City itself is is one of the most heavily populated places in the world. But I do think that Israel has done everything. But I do feel for these people because I, I read over the weekend that around 20 to 25 percent of the missiles that Hamas fires towards Israel don't actually reach Israel. They actually land in Gaza and end up killing innocent Palestinians in Gaza. And I think that's something to reflect on. I don't know if you've heard, but there's a squatter living in Royal Lodge. Uh, King Charles is trying to evict his brother, Andrew, from the property as he looks to complete the prince's exile from royal life. The problem, Prince is refusing to budge as he's not happy with the alternative accommodation he's being offered, including Frogmore Cottage, the former home uh, of Harry and Meghan. To discuss this and all things royal is Ingrid Stewart. Uh, welcome, Ingrid. Uh, now, uh, this, royal, this royal lodge, uh, I'm getting very, very confused because the last thing I read, you and I might have even discussed it, uh, about a week ago, I read that they'd finally done a deal. There was a long-running story suggesting that Charles wanted Andrew out of the Royal Lodge in Windsor Great Park because uh, it's a huge house. Yeah, he basically lives there on his own with his former wife, Sarah Ferguson. Uh, and uh, there were moves to get him into the smaller Frogmore Cottage, having kicked uh, um, Harry and Meghan out. He doesn't want to do this. And the last thing I heard, that there are £2 million worth of repairs to be done to the Royal Lodge, where Andrew has lived for some time, and he'd offered to underwrite them, which uh, begged the question, where are you getting the money from? Uh, and that, we thought, was a done deal. But no, it is this... Uh, dispute, this property dispute, seems to have reared its ugly head again. And we're now hearing that still Prince Charles is determined to kick Andrew out of Royal Lodge. What's your understanding uh, of the situation as it stands? I don't think for one moment that the king would kick Andrew out of his house. Andrew's paid rent on that house. I think he paid a rent in advance of about 75 years, which was a huge amount of money. And the house belongs to the royal, well, it sits on the royal estate. So if Andrew did leave it, there is a question, well, will, would the royal estates be happy to repay him? But I think what my understanding is what the Charles was thinking was, this is an enormous house for one or two people. It costs a fortune to run. It's got... Uh, an enormous sort of acreage or garden. I suppose it's really a small estate, about 48 acres. 
um, which also cost money. Um, Andrew's just had to pay 200,000 to get the roof repaired, not redone, but repaired. And in houses like this, it's just endless, endless money. Now, surely, um, I mean, he, he is the son of someone who was one of the richest women in the world, i.e. our late queen. Surely she must have left him provision to look after himself in that house, which we you know, which belonged to her mother at one time. It was the queen mother's residence. Um, so I just feel that these stories don't have a huge foundation. I don't think Charles would, would throw him out. I don't think he can be penniless. And I don't believe that Fergie's actually having to go out, you know, go to work in order to help him pay for it. It just doesn't make sense. Um, unless, but, does it make sense to you? Uh, well, no, it doesn't really, uh, except we do know that Charles is determined to sort of exile Andrew from royal life, quite rightly so. Uh, we've got a text coming in here, uh, Ingrid. Uh, this is from Linda. Perhaps you can answer this. Uh, Linda says, it was my understanding that these residences are for working royals. Andrew isn't currently a working royal. That's an interesting point. No, she's got a very valid point there. But I don't... I, th I don't think that Charles would actually throw his brother out. He, he is, he's out of the royal family. He, I'm sure he'd like to come back as a working royal, but I don't think for one minute he will. But um, they can't just leave the house empty. That's going to make things even worse. So um, I think it all has to be done quite gently. And I'm, I actually feel that, you know, Andrew's lost everything. I mean, I know it's entirely his fault. Yeah. But he has lost everything, so why take his house away from under him when there's no, no one necessarily about to go in there? So Charles thought, well, let him go to Frogmore, which would be easier to run, cheaper to run. And I think this is really what's going on. They're discussing what to do. But I, I stand by the fact I don't think Charles would throw him out. Uh, no, but he might uh, want to negotiate with Andrew a move to Frogmore. It makes sense. I mean, the Royal Lodge is pretty massive, and uh, Frogmore it, it is massive, yes. It has 30 rooms. I mean, that's a very expensive house to run. Mm. But I think Andrew is digging his heels in because it's his home. And it has been, you know, he's been his home for a long, long time. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, he obviously shares uh, the Royal Lodge with his former wife, uh, Sarah Ferguson. They remain the best of friends. Uh, you know the lyrics. Uh, Ingrid, uh, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Uh, Fergie turns 64 today. Uh, I suppose in terms of her accommodation, her fate is in Andrew's hands if they continue to share the same roof. Uh, so this is a, quite a stressful drama for her to go through. Uh, if they did, for example, go to the Royal Lodge, presumably Andrew would uh, take uh, Sarah with him. I mean, tell us a little bit about this relationship. It's quite strange, isn't it? You know, that they were married, they had kids, uh, then they divorced, but they seem to have become even closer after getting divorced. A very odd sort of saga, really. It is an odd saga. But, I mean, Fergie's talked about it a lot herself, and I think they are, they are best friends, and she totally says that. I think... Neither of them have any desire to marry anyone else. And, of course, it suits them both. Um, I think that, that they, really, they really kind of like being together but apart. I mean, in a way, 
it probably would suit many people to be sort of together but apart from either their husbands or maybe not their ex-husbands. But I think it was more the royal existence that Fergie was escaping from because I, you know, I used to know her pretty well and she explained that to me. I think it was the royal life that she found so difficult. And in Fergie's day, she was really criticised. I mean, the most vile things were said about her, but no one would dream of saying today. So she had a very rough time, and they uh, everyone attacked her for, for everything that was possible to attack her for, from her weight to her extravagance to her facial expressions. I mean, they just destroyed her, and she just wanted out of all that, um, not necessarily wanting to get out. And Andrew, to Andrew, Fergie is the mother of his children and always will be. Uh, indeed. I mean, in fairness, uh, Fergie... Uh... She had her moments, didn't she? I mean, she, in, to some extent, I mean, you're right, she was vilified to an unnecessary and cruel extent by the press. Uh, I was there, there on Fleet Street at the time. Uh, they called her some horrible names, but she was the architect uh, of uh, a lot of her own problems. Uh, she did have a tendency to do some very ill-advised things, didn't she? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's had an extraordinary life, and the amazing thing is that she's done some very, very ill-advised things and has admitted it, but she's still come out the other end, which is extraordinary. Most people would have been completely destroyed by some of the things she's done. The fake shake being the one that really sticks in my mind and that terribly embarrassing interview when she sort of, you know, offered access to her ex-husband, you know, for, for money. I mean, I mean, but she's come out of it. it not, is not forgetting, Ingrid, the, uh, the toe-sucking. Well, I don't rate the toe-sucking quite as much. I no, mean, no, I it's not think, as bad as the things I mean, you mentioned, you're right. But it wasn't a good look. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a good look and it was not a good look for her because of course, she was staying with the Queen at Balmoral with the Queen's grandchildren, her children at the time. So it was a dreadful, dreadful time in her life. Um, and, but she still came out of it eventually smiling and I just think she is so strong and I hugely admire her for overcoming all these difficulties. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to happier royal masses. Uh, Princess Kate uh, celebrated the England rugby win as she attended the quarterfinal match in France with William. Uh, so we've got some nice pictures of that. These two, uh, William and Kate, are getting very, very good, aren't they, at uh, the PR game. They never seem to put a foot wrong uh, in terms of you know the pictures they pose for, the events they attend. Kate in particular, the Princess of Wales, is becoming a, a sort of past master, I should say past mistress, I suppose, of how to behave as you travel around as a royal. She's, a, she's brilliant at it, isn't she? She is completely brilliant, but of course she loves rugby. They both love rugby, as obviously all their children do. And Prince George was lucky enough to go with his father um, the night before. Um, and I just think, and I remember reading that the Middletons used to play rugby as a family, and Kate can play rugby. We saw her the other day. I mean, she is extraordinary. There's nothing this can't do. And she really, really enjoys the game of rugby. patron of the Rugby Football Union, and it's obviously one of the, the patronships, patronships, the patronages <laughs> she has that she really enjoys. And she looks like, I think they're magic is that they really look like they're enjoying it and she's got wonderful smile 
and um, and she's very tactile with people, but not too tactile. She's just nailed it. Yeah. Um, but it must be quite exhausting. You know, yeah. she's got three young children, and she's they never stop working. Yeah, and I think they, I think uh, Kate in particular does enjoy it. I, I love the uh, netball pictures last week where she, she tried to sort of shoot a hoop and uh, missed it about 12 times. And then as she walked off to the left, just sort of uh, absentmindedly hurled it over her shoulder and it went straight in, the ball. So uh, she, she's good at tennis as well, isn't she? So uh, I think she loves her sporting patronages because she's a sporting lady. She's a, she does, she sails, she rows. Do you remember, I think it might have even been before she was married to William. She used to do a lot of rowing, you know, girls rowing. I mean, there's only one thing that, that Kate can't do in the sporting world, and that is uh, riding. You know, she's not an equestrian, which might have been a stumbling, a stumbling block of being a member of the royal family, but nobody notices because she does everything else so well. Now, it's been a difficult few months for the SNP. A by-election defeat to Labour, one of their own MPs defecting to the Conservatives and the former Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon being arrested as part of a police investigation into the party's finances. Scotland's First Minister Hamza Yousaf is looking to re-energise the party at their annual conference in Aberdeen and looks to rebound from their heavy defeat to Labour in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. Keir Starmer is optimistic his party will be able to replicate the win in dozens of seats north of the border at the next general election. We can now go live to Scotland and speak to the political editor of the Scottish Daily Mail, Michael Blackley. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michael. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 it's either an auspicious or an inauspicious time to start the SNP conference, but uh, never for the past 13 years or so has it begun in such difficult circumstances. Uh, Hamza Yousaf, the First Minister, has this other drama going on in terms of his relatives, his mother-in-law in, -law in uh, Gaza. Obviously, our sympathy goes to him and his family in these circumstances. But uh, politically, he's in big trouble, isn't he? Yeah, it's certainly quite a difficult backdrop for Hamza Yusuf for his first conference. It was always going to be the case when the by-election was quite close to this first SNP conference. Uh, a, a defeat in that by-election, which always looked pretty inevitable, was going to be quite a quite a difficult thing for him to handle. So um, yesterday, I mean, the, the debate was about the in, independence strategy yesterday. And ultimately, Hamza Yusuf agreed to many of the amendments, many of the things that the people were rebelling on. So he accepted uh, some of what was proposed. He changed course. And I think that's quite interesting because you, you didn't really see much of that under Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon is actually going to be here today, which could dominate attention today. But Nicola Sturgeon was very unwilling to change track. She, she made up her mind and sort of stuck to it. So... Quite interesting that Hamza Yusuf is taking a bit of a different strategy. Yeah, so he, he, he she uh, intended to use the election, the general election, as a sort of de facto referendum on the on the issue of independence. Uh, he is now saying he won't do that. That presumably that's in the light of the fact the Supreme Court has said, well, you can't have a second referendum. End of. 
Uh, but he is still going to use the election to his campaign chorus, if you like, will be, uh, he will be demanding, calling for a second referendum. Uh, why does he think he can get that, uh, given that the Supreme Court has decided uh, Scotland can't have it? Well, I, I don't think it's not decided that there can't be a referendum. The Supreme Court decided that uh, the, the powers over it were reserved, so it's a it's an issue for Westminster. And ultimately, that's that's what was agreed yesterday was that the SNP are going to put the issue of independence front and centre in a in an election campaign. And they they clearly think that by having this strategy, they're going to keep pro-independence voters on their side and that's going to maximise their vote amongst pro-independence voters. However, there is a bit of a risk in it as well because independence is going to be literally on the ballot paper next to the SNP name and logo. So uh, in most elections, the SNP actually at some point try to appeal to people that maybe aren't uh, in favour of independence, and they sort of say the SNP will stand up for Scotland at Westminster, it's going to be really difficult for them to do that. So effectively, uh, people that support the union probably are not going to vote for the SNP in the upcoming election, and that, that could be a, a challenge for them. Um, in terms of the, the strategy, I mean, what, what they are proposing is that if they win the majority of seats in the majority of Scottish seats in our general election, then they would declare that as a mandate to have an independence yeah. referendum. So ultimately, they would then just demand that the UK government uh, allow an independence referendum. Of course, the SNP could win a majority of seats, but but actually lose a number of seats compared to what they have at the moment. So the chances of the UK government actually agreeing to that in the event of the SNP losing seats, I think it's pretty unlikely. I think it's pretty unlikely anyway. That's what I meant, that the Supreme Court has said it's actually within the remit of the Westminster government whether or not... Uh, Scotland can have a second independence referendum. And, of course, every single uh, Westminster government is going to say no. Uh, I suspect Labour will say the same if they get in. Uh, so, uh, I mean, banging this drum, I mean, they're running out of rope here, aren't they? You know, we're going to get independence, we're going to have a referendum. Well, uh, the Supreme Court says it's the decision of the London government, of the Westminster government, and no Westminster government will ever decide to let Scotland go. So the real question here is, you know, the Scottish uh, National Party stands for the independence of Scotland. It is nowhere near getting that. In fact, it's got no chance of getting it. So what is the point of the Scottish National Party? Um, well, the, the point that they're, they're trying to make is that they're, they are all about independence, so they're going to continue that, that push. But it, it does seem like independence is further down the road than it has been for a long, long time, really, uh, since the aftermath of the... Uh, independence referendum in 2014, the SNP had a had a big bounce. They uh, they won a lot of additional seats in 2015. They've done fairly well in subsequent elections, but I, I think there's a lot of concern in the SNP now about 
what lies ahead in the next general election. There's the, the potential for, for quite big losses. And I think that's what we're hearing at SNP conferences. Uh, Hamza Yusuf desperately trying to put his stamp on the party and, and trying to move on from, from that. But as I say, Nicola Sturgeon is going to be here today and uh, she's going to dominate attention and it's going to make people uh, pose the question, you know, is... Is Hamza Yusuf just a, a fairly poor tribute act to Nicola Sturgeon, or is he able to be his own man and put his stamp on the party? Um, so, you know, as you say, uh, Michael, uh, the SNP was not only uh, defeated uh, by Labour in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, it was absolutely thumped. I mean, it was thrashed. And that must have been a very worrying moment for uh, Yousaf and his party and Labour have set their sights on uh, potentially 20 seats and it looks like uh, there may be a surge north of the border by Labour yet again uh, to return to their traditional position of dominance up there. Uh, so uh, can Yousaf and the SNP hold off this Labour on onslaught or is it inevitable? I think it's starting to look fairly inevitable that Labour are going to win a lot of seats from the, the SNP. But it, it isn't even just Labour. There are there are a lot of seats where the Conservatives are the, the main challenger to the SNP, particularly around about the, the, the south of Scotland and the northeast of Scotland. And I think I think you're actually going to see when it comes to the general election that there is going to be some tactical voting perhaps. So in, in some seats, maybe Conservative voters might lend their vote to Labour if they look most likely to beat the SNP. And I think the same thing will happen in seats where the Conservatives are the, are the challengers. So I think pro-union tactical voting is a real threat for the SNP because at the moment they look like they could have considerable losses in the, in the general election. And there is no question at all that if pro-union voters start to unite around one candidate in each constituency, and that's that's going to be even more of a risk to the SNP when it comes to the general election. As you said, uh, Michael, uh, Nicola Sturgeon is coming back from beyond the grave to attend the conference today, uh, taking all the limelight off uh, Hamza Youssef. I don't know what he thinks about this, but no one will be thinking or talking about him today. They'll all be talking about Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, to what extent do members of the SNP hold her responsible for the decline in the party's fortunes? Uh, uh, obviously, no charges, nobody's found guilty of anything yet, but... Uh, uh, the SNP looks like it's in one hell of a mess about its finances uh, with the extraordinary events we've seen over the past few months. You know, the interviewing of, uh, uh, of Nicola and her husband by the police plus the party treasurer. Uh, to what extent do members of the SNP hold Ms Surgeon responsible for this decline? It's, it's an interesting question because... It actually seems like there isn't a massive amount of scrutiny of Nicola Sturgeon's time as leader from within the SNP. So I, I don't think there's there's been that reality check about the fact that, you know, there, there's things that were going, going wrong. I mean, Hamza Youssef has come in 
And one of the first things that he has needed to do has been to reverse quite a lot of the policies that Nicola Sturgeon was pursuing, uh, things like the deposit return scheme. They had a, a proposal to crack down on fishing and other uh, activity in coastal waters. And, and that was there was a U-turn on that. There's been a whole series of U-turns, which does make you, you wonder, um, you know, you know, was Nicola Sturgeon just not scrutinised enough within the SNP? Did they not challenge the policy? Uh, it certainly seems the case that some of the cabinet ministers had a lot less of a say on policy under Nicola Sturgeon. And then, of course, there's the internal issues, the, the party's finances, uh, there's the ongoing police investigation, but there was also uh, the latest annual account showed that the, the finances are in a pretty sorry state. There was a big loss, more than £800,000 last year. Uh, the donations have dried up and uh, membership numbers are on de in decline as well. So I think people now are maybe starting to look at some of these issues and think, how on earth did the SNP get into the state from being such a such a big active party with a lot of money and a lot of resources to posting losses and having uh, more liabilities than they do assets, according to their latest accounts? Uh, indeed, but politically, I think uh, Nicola Sturgeon led the SNP uh, down some uh, ill-advised rabbit holes, especially uh, the, the, the one uh, populated by... Uh, trans women uh, who are transferred to women's jails. And uh, we're talking about sex offenders. Remember, what was it, uh, Isla Bryson, you know, who was a double rapist, a convicted double rapist, biological male, of course, now identifying as a woman. Nicola Sturgeon had no uh, hesitation. Oh, well, but it, she uh, belongs in a women's jail. Uh, she had to reverse that decision. I would suggest that because although uh, a lot of Scottish people tend to be left-leaning, tend to be socially liberal, uh, they're not uh, stupid. And that was a stupid policy. It wasn't sensible. Uh, another reason why I think the people, uh, the members of the SNP should look to Nicola Sturgeon and say, well, was she all that much cop, really? Uh, perhaps not. I mean, there is no question that she was a skilled politician, a, a, a good political performer. Uh, she was she was good at uh, putting a positive spin on her policies. So, uh, in in that sense, uh, perhaps the SNP don't have anyone anyone like her that's able to do that and able to campaign as effectively as her. But the issue that you mentioned, their gender reform, has been tearing the SNP apart for years. There's huge opposition to it from within sections of the SNP. And really, that's that's one of the big divisive issues that, that's uh, been around in recent years and, and been a problem for, for Nicola Sturgeon. And possibly it is when you look back at, to the way that it was handled. I mean, when that that uh, gender reform was progressing through the Scottish Parliament, a lot of the proposed changes to it from opponents, but also from some M SNP MSPs were just dismissed and were, were ruled out when actually they, they could have potentially saved the legislation. Now we have the situation where the UK government has has blocked it, it's going through the courts and it, it might potentially never go ahead. And really you have to wonder, was was that a failing on Nicola Sturgeon's part, the, the failing to listen to concerns and to, to respond to them? Perhaps it's her, her fault that her own legislation hasn't progressed. 
Uh, indeed. Now, let's talk about the important stuff. Uh, Scotland, I can't barely believe I'm saying this, have qualified for the Euros in 2024 with two matches to spare. What's going on? It's, uh, I don't think I've, uh, I quite believe it because uh, we, we had won the five games and I think uh, every Scotland supporter was looking and thinking, surely we're not going to throw this away from, from here. Even Scotland have to qualify. So, uh, so there were a few happy faces around here last night, certainly. At the, we were all Spain fans, I think, last night. Now, uh, we're going to stick with the uh, Israel conflict here and uh, we're going straight over, I think, to uh, our next guest, who is May Garland, and she's the Israeli Minister for Women. Uh, thank you for joining us, May. Uh, can I ask you uh, what the situation is right now uh, we have been following for days now the amassing of Israel troops, uh, obviously all around the border of Gaza, uh, with hearing, you know, uh, towards 400,000, a massive force. Uh, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, says the moment is near. Uh, when are you expecting this invasion to start? Uh, you need to understand that Israel is now under a war and uh, we are under missiles every second. When we're speaking, I can uh, uh, hear the siren every second and run to the uh, safe room that I have. Uh, we are not talking about the exact time that our military will go in. I don't want to expose anything that will endanger Israel. But I do want to tell you that uh, the war hasn't started yet. And if everyone uh, around the world thinks that uh, this is just uh, in the middle of it or we're towards the end, then he's very big mistaking because uh, we have seen things that we haven't seen since the Holocaust and Israel refuses to live under uh, a Nazi attack once again and refuses to live under Nazi uh, um attacks actually by slaughtering women and babies and children. And we said never again, and we meant it. I want to tell you that every day we find out more and more horrors, really unbelievable, unbelievable things that the mind even can comprehend. And as the Minister of Women's Advancement in Israel, uh, I formed a, a help center for women around Israel. And just yesterday, I received uh, another horror to hear that uh, a husband found his wife uh, while when she was pregnant, while uh, the terrorists took out the fetus, took out the baby, uh, put it outside after slaughtering the mother and shot the baby outside. This is what the husband had to find out. And this is things that the mind can't comprehend. And we keep saying, the world is keep saying that Hamas is ISIS. But I want to tell you something that is very important for me to say to you and to the world. Uh, Hamas is worse than ISIS because when ISIS uh, slaughtered and killed human beings and took off heads, uh, no one like Gigi Hadid and the rest of those celebrities dared to stood up with them. But Hamas uh, pretended to be a, a peace uh, organization, someone that wants to fight for freedom and uh, and didn't have all these celebrities standing and, and, and helping them and, and making them be normal towards the world. So I want to say to the world right now, Hamas is worse than ISIS. It's not just ISIS. I want to tell you another horror story. You know, as people were waiting yesterday at the graveyard for the funeral, uh, where when they think that the, the body of their beloved one is about to, to come out, uh, uh, one of the rabbis comes out and say, I'm sorry, but you have to wait a little bit longer. After a, a little more time, we found out that a hand grenade was put inside of the body in order to... to 
to make to make it more evil, more satanic, more more crazy. So I, I want to tell to the world where the world is talking about when the military is going to get in or not. They need to understand that the Jewish people that has been prosecuted for over 2000 years is now facing something that no person in his right mind can even realize. And, and while the world is talking about what's happening in Gaza, I want to remind the world about uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention and the section of 27, because the UN and HUG and all these women organizations that are staying silent right now. By the way, I've never saw so many feminists being silent at the same time. The only time they're so silent is when a Jewish woman or Israeli woman is being raped or murdered. But I guess anti-Semitism is much more hard than uh, feminism in this time. But I want to tell you that by the Geneva uh, Convention, uh, you cannot attack women and children. And this is a, a very bad violation of the Geneva Convention. And yet you hear nothing from the UN. You hear nothing from HAG. You hear nothing from the women organizations around the world. And all these celebrities that talked about the situation of women in Gaza are not saying anything, absolutely anything about what women are going through. Women were slaughtered, were raped, were brutally beaten, were kidnapped with their children to, the, to Gaza while they're naked. This is things that, that, that you know, and, and while filming live by those groups of terrorists from Hamas, and I want to tell you something, as a woman and as the Minister of Women's Advancement in Israel, you know, I can't close my eyes for the last week. I cannot. Uh, what, after seeing those horrors, I don't think that my soul and my mind will ever be the same. And I call upon the world that sees those horrors and stay silent. A lot are with us. I know that. A lot stand with Israel. But those celebrities, like I, I saw Oprah Winfrey for for for, uh. for matters that saying Jennifer Aniston, all these all these celebrities that stay silent and always talk about women's rights. Where are you when women's rights are being brutally, brutally, brutally attacked in a democracy? This is not just a fight for Israel. This is fight for the rest okay, of May. the Jewish nation around let the world. Let me ask you a question, a May. 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 Let me ask a you a question. Let me ask you a question, May. Yes. Uh, you, you, you are uh, clearly furious and you're grieving. Yes. And I think uh, all Israelis uh, are in the same mood as you. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, is uh, pledging, vowing to destroy Hamas. Uh, and frankly, we all hope uh, that he succeeds in that endeavour. Uh, now, the international community, meanwhile, are, uh, in, because of innocent Palestinian citizens, are urging restraint on the part of Israel. My feeling is it's very important that Israel avenges what happened to its people last weekend, the grotesque atrocities. It's very important that Israel avenges it, uh, and is seen to avenge, uh, to exact revenge. Uh, but when the international community says, well, show restraint, uh, will Israel, will the IDF show restraint when they go into Gaza? I want to start by saying that the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world. I repeat, the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world. And while those civilians of Gaza that you're talking about, were a part of slaughtering men, women, and children inside of the territory of Israel. While they are part of it, the moral army of Israel is putting in the south of Gaza a, a safe zone, a safe zone for those civilians. But I want to make something, and I, I want to make it clear. When those two million Palestinians chose Hamas, okay, 
30,000 Hamas people. This is the entire population of Hamas in Gaza. Those 2 million Palestinians chose them, just like in any Arabic dictatorship slash democracy, the way they, they refer to it, did. We have to treat them the same. When Americans attacked the Nazis, they didn't take uh, any consideration into the civilians. When the Allies attacked the Nazis, they didn't take any consideration to the civilians, to the gas, to the fuel, to the water. They didn't. And yet still, the army of Israel put a safe zone in the south of Gaza. And I want to tell you, the, the, we, we have alerted the, the, the civilians of Gaza to, to, to leave the north of Gaza. And yet the Hamas people won't let them leave, won't let them out. They are the ones who are using the people of Gaza and their children and the women as a shield for their terror. They are the ones who's doing it. And I, and I want to tell you another thing. The, 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 we are talking a lot, you know, uh, on the media all day, all night. The media is sitting here. She's interviewing people that were, their, their, their families were slaughtered and kidnapped and killed. People that were part of, of peace organizations that were driving uh, 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 Gaza people to, to the hospitals in Israel. And they were the ones who live in there. And Hamas knows this. Hamas has no difference between lefties and righties in Israel. They have no difference between people who want peace and don't want peace. They want to kill Jews, period. And uh, once again, you know, uh, we don't owe any kind of consideration to people that didn't have any consideration to us. And if we're talking, you know, the world is talking about proportional response. If we're talking about that, then you know what? I wrote it right down here. Remember Gilad Shalit, the kidnapped soldiers, re-released 1,027 prisoners for him. 1,027 prisoners for him. So on a, on a normal mathematics, you know, if we want to, to, to uh, avenge, like you said, and this is, by the way, not about avenge. This is about destroying Hamas and all terrorists. I think you've got every right to avenge that. what happened. We need mate. more than a million dead people in Gaza, and this is not the goal. And, and, and just another What is thing. the goal then, May? What is the goal of Israel? I mean, obviously in the short term, I think you do have to avenge what happened. Yes. Uh, we really hope that you succeed in finding all of Hamas and you destroy them. Uh, then what? What is the plan uh, for the Gaza Strip? Uh, what is Israel's plan for it after it has hopefully destroyed uh, Hamas? You know, the, the Palestinians could have enjoyed uh, a very rich... Uh, a generous neighbor next to them. We saw this with the peace agreement with Egypt, with Lebanon, with the Abraham Accords. We saw tourists coming from there to Israel, tourists from Israel coming there, but there's no partner to make peace with. So right now it's about destroying all Hamas people, all terrorism, all their facilities, all their weapons, everything that has to do with terror. Israel will not will not accept living next to terrorism anymore. Again, I repeat, this is a very important word for me. Israel is not just fighting on behalf of itself. It's fighting on behalf of the free world, on behalf of the, every democratic country in the world. And, and, and killing Hamas is just, it's not just Hamas here. It's killing uh, uh, the hope that Iran has to have to destroy Israel, the people in Lebanon, the people in Syria, the, all the, the terror groups that are staying there, not the people, I'm sorry, the, the terror Terror groups that are sitting there and wanting to destroy Israel and just waiting to buy their time. Hezbollah is on the north, waiting to see if we will destroy this, this group organizations. And I and I want to I want to clarify something. This has never.
never been, has never been about uh, uh, making the situation of the people in, in, in Gaza worse, ever. We saw that if, not, if it wasn't for the money and the, and the electricity and the water and all the assistance that Israel has given uh, the people of Gaza, Hamas wouldn't have cared for anything for the people of Gaza. May, may, may can I ask you a question about uh, back here in Britain? Over the weekend, we saw a lot of uh, demonstrations. Nearly all of them were pro-Palestine to the extent that our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is now proposing that we make uh, flying the Palestinian flag, draping yourself in the Palestinian flag illegal because among those demonstrators were people who were openly supporting Hamas. Uh, so it wasn't just pro-Palestine, it was pro-Hamas. Uh, what do you think about that sort of thing happening back here in Britain? Why does it happen? You people, the Israelis, or the victims here, you were invaded, and the response back in Britain seems to be, rah, 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 go Palestine. Well, what do you make of that? It hurts me to the core. It's, it's, it's a real shame, you know, because we're not, ju not just talking about, you know, uh, uh, Israel and Palestinians, occupation, not occupation. We are talking about killing women, men and children, raping them, slaughtering them, taking off their heads, doing things that I don't even want to say so your viewers won't, won't, won't feel so sick in their stomachs. And yet this specify the fact that Israel is under attack at all times. And you see it in the biggest university around and universities around the world where pro-Palestinians rally uh, uh, happens again and again and again, which which means which means and this is really the most crucial thing about this, which means that Israel is not really safe until the rest of the world, the rest of the free world, will stand up and say, never again. This is a shameful thing that, that people are putting the flag of Hamas. Hamas is ISIS. Hamas is terror. Whoever puts Hamas' flag and, and, put, and wrapped her, himself around it is a pro-murder. And make no mistakes, if they dare to do it here on the border of Israel, those people that rally up and say and, and rally up pro-Palestine, they will murder in your country. They will do the same thing when they can they, because they have terror groups around the world sitting and waiting for the day of order. And this is the dangerous thing. This is not just against Israel and Jewish people. This is against everything that is liberal, that is democratic. You, you know what? As the Minister of Women's Advancement, I know the situation of Arab women, not just in Israel and in Gaza, but around the world. This is a dark, dark culture and dictatorship that, that doesn't believe in the rights of women, doesn't believe in the rights of, of the liberal world. Does, I, I heard your conversation before I started about, about a different topic, but, but I, I don't want to go uh, make it uh, wider and talk about it. And, but I want to say that the, the topic that you talked about, if you take it to, to those Hamas people and to this culture, they will never allow it to happen. So I, I, wa I want to make clear, any protest that is pro-Hamas is pro-terror. Any protest that is pro-Hamas is pro-terror and should be forbidden in a democratic country. And it's shameful to know. I've been in the UK many times and I love the people there and I know that what they think. And I cannot believe that any democratic uh, British uh, person will be pro this act if it's not a part of a terror group. And you should forbid it and you should stand up and say no Hamas flag because Hamas is ISIS, Hamas is terror, Hamas is pro-raping. It is illegal already uh, here, mate. It's illegal to uh, support Hamas or to uh, display any of their insignia. Uh, we are now proposing to maybe extend that to uh, flying the... Uh, 
Palestinian flag because underneath the Palestinian flag, so many Hamas supporters seem to gather. Uh, in terms of the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, I mean, do, do you accept or, or do you believe that Hamas are theological tyrants uh, who have terrified these people. There are a lot of Palestinians who are too scared to speak up, but they, they don't support Hamas. I mean, the people of Gaza aren't necessarily massive Hamas fans. They are just ruled with a kind of vicious rod of iron by these people. Uh, if we get rid of Hamas, perhaps the Palestinians uh, would be less aggressive towards you. I can only hope so. I can only hope so. But I want to tell you, um, in the end of the day, uh, I always believed that Hamas took 2 million people as hostages. But I now know different. I now know different because seeing uh, the sights of so many uh, uh, um, uh, Palestinian civilians in Gaza after this attack, standing on the roofs, dancing, uh, uh, singing, put, making music, being so happy, glorifying the Shahids, glorifying the terrorism. Uh, uh, may, giving candies outside. You need to understand when a, when a Jewish mother loses her son, she will suffer towards the end of her days and not just her, her family and the entire population of Israel with her. And this is the difference between right and wrong. This is the difference between evil and good. This is the difference between us who want peace and, and the Hamas people, women, children and men going out, giving out candies, even under the attacks. So you, you have to ask yourself in the end of the day, is this truly what the civilians of, of, of Gaza want? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.